This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Tonic, heard Saturday afternoons at 1 on Zoomer Radio. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. Our brain is primarily fat. Over 50% of the brain is fat. For brain health, we need fat for nutrient absorption. We need fat for proper cellular functioning, like our cell walls in our bodies comprised of fatty substances. Welcome to the new and expanded 60-minute version of The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we're going to discuss the pros and cons of offloading responsibility for infrastructure to the province. We'll discuss digital access to health records, learn about healthy fats, and we're also going to find out what's more important, probiotics or prebiotics. But first, a little bit of business. Support for today's show comes from the Benvenuto Group. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services, and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal, and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will also deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency, and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. Mitchell Abrahams is the principal of the Benvenuto Group. He's a real estate professional with over 25 years of commercial and multifamily residential real estate experience. He's converted apartments into condominiums and developed condominium and apartment projects. Welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm well. Last month when you were on, uh, we were talking about whether there's a real estate bubble in Toronto. And, and one of the factors mitigating against the notion of the bubble is that Toronto has become an international city. And, and you know, we discussed that. And then in that context, we discussed what would it take to grow the city going forward. And we ended off discussing the possibility of the province taking over responsibility of the infrastructure. So I thought, you know, it'd be interesting to sort of explore that today and talk about what that means for the city and what that means for the province and probably larger issues. So going back to the beginning, what do we mean when we're talking about infrastructure? What does that mean to you? So first, let me say, yeah. I'm not an expert on infrastructure. Yeah, no, I know. Right, that. and often we're talking about things where I've spent 30 years uh, yeah. in real estate and understand we're gonna it really fake well. It. We're going to so, fake yeah, it today. So, and I'm not good at faking it, but you know what? So that's why I'm going to look to you to yeah. sort of get some insight. Sure. And I'm hoping that your listeners are also going to give some thought to this stuff because it's not just stuff with a clear answer, but yeah. there are things going on that I shake my head at when it comes to infrastructure, and you sort of wonder how we can all sort of – when we have a chance to speak to our city councillors, to our representatives at Queen's Park, if you ever get a chance to do it, where people really should lean in and say things they see that don't make sense. When we hear issues like affordability as problems in the city, and then you see things that sort of seem to be counterproductive that are going on around us, I think it's our responsibility all to sort of put up our hands and say, why are we doing this? Right. When I talk about infrastructure, there's a number of things, right? It's sewers and water and power and roads. But then on top of that, you know, there's transit, and transit is a number of different uh, sort of pieces in in the city and in the region, and schools, and community centers, and parkland, and in some ways affordable housing, and hospitals, and schools. 
Yep. Right? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that sort of supports the network of services that we expect when we're living in a major city. And different levels of government have different re- levels of responsibility, and they overlap in some ways. And I just the times wonder how coordinated these things are and how smartly we're approaching them. Yeah, I think the, the overlap is really sort of the problem, right? Uh, you know, it's, you know, I'm going back to my, my lawyer days where there's sort of division of powers, right? So the federal government has responsibility over certain key infrastructure issues. And then the provinces have a tremendous amount of control in terms of what they are responsible for from a constitutional perspective. And some of that through the Municipal Act gets downloaded to cities. But when you get a city the size of Toronto, Toronto, and then you look at the metropolitan area of Toronto, the 905, the Golden Horseshoe, however you want to describe it, you're talking about the vast majority of the province from a revenue generating perspective, a tax collection perspective, and pure population. I mean, you know, we are big. I guess the question is, and again, I'm not an expert in this stuff, but, you know, tax collection and responsibility is a sort of complicated area, right? So from what I understand, the city of Toronto was given significantly more powers a number of years ago through the City of Toronto Act, which downloaded some responsibility to the area because it was getting bigger and people were lobbying and saying, we need to have some more control over our destiny. I think the challenge comes in, cities are limited in terms of where they can source revenues. They have realty taxes, they have development charges, and they've got other charges that you charge to real estate developers, and they've got some retail taxes and other type of things, but they don't have an unlimited number of sort of sources of where do you get revenue. There's no income taxes. And there's also restrictions, I think, on where they can raise capital. You know, the yep. charter of a city is is much more limited than for the province or for the country. So in some ways, you know, we keep sort of, especially as the real estate industry, being have, having things downloaded onto us in terms of higher development charges and more people trying to get a piece of this golden goose, for a, for a lack of a better word. Right. But that's conventional. And when, when you look at the city, you know, there's a limit to how much debt a city can take on. I think there, there's right. limits on how they have to balance their budget. Well, because they, they can't raise money in the same way that a province can. Right? Correct. Like, I, I don't know that the city issue bonds or, 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 you know, like they have to get their money through other sources. And a lot of it is transfers from federal and Correct. From province. And I think that the, the opportunity, especially at a provincial level, and I think we'll start seeing more of this with the current government is there are smarter ways to raise capital through public partnerships and other sort of capital raises where non-conventional sources of revenue can be used to support major projects. You look around the world and major infrastructure is being done in combination with major institutions and pension funds together with governments. We saw that in the 407, but I think in a lot of ways, the province is going to start looking at well-grounded business ways to approach major projects. And, and I think in some ways, the city wants responsibility over certain things but they need help in others to be able to see through a comprehensive plan to doing things. Yeah, and I think we'll focus on that aspect moving forward. I think another thing to sort of to consider is also the overlap and the wastage, right? And, and when you have conflicting agendas, for example, in transit, right? So you have the province who has to deal with, you know, the issues of bringing people from the 905 into the 416 so that they can work, so mm-hmm. that the city works, so that they can charge taxes, et cetera, et cetera. But then you have the city itself and you have the people who live there who, you know, by and large resent the tra- traffic influx and and the congestion problems and all the problems that go along with having people coming in and out of your city every single day, you know? I think there's that from a regional perspective, but I think even on a more local perspective. It's challenging because how many people get a chance to take a step back and look at the overall plan, right? The province has a growth plan yep. that's in place that's supposed to concentrate 
transit investment on particular neighborhoods, which are categorized as urban growth centers. So that's where we're going to see more development. Well, at the same time, a lot of those areas push back in terms of the amount of development there should be. So you're looking for billions of dollars of infrastructure to go into transit. And at the same time, there are challenges to the speed and level of intensification, the speed at which things are approved and the level of intensification that people are prepared to live with at particularly these transit nodes. And you sort of wonder, are we shooting ourselves in the foot in terms of investing these dollars with major stations and major areas and not striving enough to get a coordinated number of developments and density to support transit ridership. So I guess you're talking about like the Eglinton Corridor and the Shepherd Corridor, for example. You I, know. I think a lot of those sort of projects come with challenges. They're more than uh, sort of one-dimensional in terms of getting transit. Then you want to get people around it. And then that brings a whole new set of challenges, right? So if we're going to do this and we're going to have lots of people living at Young and Eglinton, are there enough schools at Young and Eglinton? Are there enough, you know, social uh, services? Are there enough recreational services around it? How do we get this all at the same time so that, you know, in some ways I find my industry, we push to do this stuff because there's a huge demand for housing. We're, we've got a lot of immigration. We've got a lot of growth. We have a successful city. How do you get development done and then not have this gap of uh, everything that's supposed to be around it coming quick enough because who's the industry or what's the industry driving the growth of that stuff? And sometimes when you're relying more on the public sector to supply that, it doesn't keep up with this pace at which you can supply the housing to put people where they want to live. Yeah, and then when you put them where, where they want to live, the question is what kind of neighborhoods are you building? So they put up eight guess billion condominiums right downtown and they presume that everybody's going to live in there are going to be singles or couples. And lo and behold, those couples have kids. Right. So you have these two-bedroom condos and people are like putting their kids in closets literally mm-hmm. and the stress on the, there's no schools right nobody contemplated that they'd have to build schools where all these people are living go figure so so, so it's so interesting you say that because i happen to drive you know from north of lawrence yeah to the zoomer radio studio yeah. today along dufferin yeah so I can't help and shake my head because when I drive anywhere, I, I drive with the perspective of, of a city builder or a real estate developer, right? And right. I'm looking at things. So I cross DuPont and I see the former Galleria Mall or the existing yeah, Galleria yeah. Mall, which is slated for development for thousands of uh, residential units. Some right. low rise, some mid rise, some high rise. Interesting. Then I uh, cross uh, Bloor Street and I see Dufferin Mall, Mall, which has the same sort of uh, opportunity, right? People are talking about redevelopment at Dufferin Mall. There's lots of land. Let's make the retail more successful and more compact and let's put a lot of residential around it. Great. But one block before at the corner of Bloor and Dufferin, there's a TDSB school slated to be closed. Right. Right? And I'm saying, well, perhaps the demand for students going to that school isn't there today. And perhaps there's an opportunity to uh, get a lot of money into the school board today that they could use in other places right now. But project 10 or 15 years out, people want to live in the heart of the city. Here's a huge piece of land with a huge school. You know that there are going to be hundreds and or if not thousands of kids looking to go to a school in their neighborhood and were for some reason not prioritizing those with enough of an agenda looking forwards 
to think about this being a problem in the future. It's particularly galling when they are already suffering from this problem where they know it's happening, right? Like, like it's been presented to them where there's condos, there are kids. And even though you don't contemplate that as the the sort of the main constituency, you have to plan for it. I don't whatever. Let's talk about transit a bit because I think to me that's the crucial one. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, you're going to have to build sewers, you're going to have to replace the pipes. Mm-hmm. But if you really want Toronto to continue to be the engine of the province and probably the nation, we have to make sure that people can get in and, and do their job and, and live here. So what's going on, as far as you know, from a development perspective, with transit in and around the city? What, what's the current state of affairs? Well, I think there are a number of projects underway right now. I yep. think uh, the challenge with them, first of all, is, uh, you know, it's expensive to do, yeah. uh, right? So how many can you do at the same time and how do you make it a priority, right? right? So I think the mayor's challenge with trying to figure these things out, you've got roads to do, like the gardener, you've got subways to do, you've the got... relief uh, line, yeah. Right. And then... On a larger scale, there's a regional transit plan that also has to support. Like, you know, we talked last time. I believe that just with the Crosstown Link, there are whole neighborhoods along Eglinton that have sort of stagnated for a long time that yep. are going to open up new options for people to live in urban areas. You know, look at Eglinton and, and Weston Road and Black Creek, et cetera. These are areas that sort of really have a chance to sort of do it right and create new places for people to live. But there's always going to be young families who are looking for a, a three or four bedroom house with a backyard so that, you know, their kids can go play in the backyard and whatever. And not all of those are going to be resolved in an affordable way in the city. Right. So then the question is, how do we expand the boundaries of the city or the the region in a comfortable way where people can come work in Toronto and live a little further out? And, you know, you look at it, it's happening by default in areas like Hamilton and stuff like that. But there should be more and more opportunities for people to work in a bigger region. And, you know, you don't need to go as far as talking about high-speed rail between that whole, you know, sort of golden triangle or whatever, or from Montreal to Toronto and all the way to Waterloo. But you could see where with 350,000 people a year coming to the greater Toronto area for the foreseeable future, we've got the opportunity to build a great city. We just don't want to sort of face pushback and we got to figure how all three levels of government can put their heads together and say, how do we solve this in the heart of the city? How do we solve this in the greater area? Because there's a lot to do. Yeah. One thing occurs to me, and I know a lot of developers are in favor of this, but I think it would be a horrific political battle is to open up some of the green space. Uh, You know, the Rouge Valley, there's a lot of protected green space in and around the city that if it were managed responsibly, and I I don't even know what that means, but just to say that phrase, I think some of that land could be freed up for, for more affordable housing or at least better housing along the transit nodes. And then you might find that there's more downward pressure on pricing. But, you know, I think it's a big issue. And again, I'm not an expert in it, but I, w- I was at a dinner last week with uh, one of the major banks uh, and the chief economist of the bank's book. And he sort of talked about the costs that we face in Canada and how they impact on the Canadian economy. So one of the things he said, tongue in cheek, which was quite funny, was, you know, the challenge with Canada is that we have global warming, but the U.S. doesn't. Right. Uh, right? And I'm not uh, necessarily a proponent of uh, sort of blowing up the green belt. I do believe that there are really all kinds of smart things to do in urban and suburban areas and in fringe areas outside the city before we start attacking something that's been sort of put there for a reason in terms of let's have Fine. local I'll, food, I'll, food I'll, supply I'll, for the area. But I'll, you can be, you can field, be that guy. I'll feel the angry phone calls. You're off the hook now. So what do you see as the benefit for the perhaps the province taking over for 
for transit, for example? Like, how could the city benefit from that? I think the main thing that, that we touched on before was just that, you know, the ability to coordinate and to work with outside sort of private sector suppliers rather than just a... Because the city isn't prepared to do that or they can't do that? Or? I, I just think, first of all, from a mandate perspective, from a financing perspective, the yeah. province has this ability to do what countries have done all over the world, get into what people call triple P sort of private public-private partnerships and be able to bring in consortiums of qualified engineering firms, capital sources, and management people who can sort of focus on this with a bottom line focus rather than sort of trying to balance it on an agenda. Like, you know, there are a lot of people who work for the city, but there's never enough. The city is growing at such a pace that you really could use a SWAT team of, of a great consortium to be able to execute some of these major projects. I suppose the one con to sort of uploading that responsibility to the province to take it away from the city is that there's a less of a say for the people that live in the, in the 416, right? If, if the province is making those decisions, it might feel as though, quote unquote, the, the premier doesn't like the city, we're being punished, we have unique transit needs that aren't being addressed. Do you agree with that? Or I agree, but I got to believe that there's two pieces to it. There's the politics and there's the execution. I would obviously love to see the city involved in trying to be an important partner in figuring out what its long-term needs are and having an intelligent dialogue with the right people at different levels of government. But at the same time, once you agree on a plan, and I'm assuming you can agree on a plan, or at least priorities for a five-year period of time, right? right, Then why not work together to try to find the most cost-effective and expedient way to get some of these projects done rather than just talking about them? Do you trust that this particular provincial government has the right mandate and, and would, you know, give careful thought to the type of answers that are required for the difficult problems that we have? I have no idea, but I do see in signs of what what we've seen to date. First of all, they realize that there are lots of things that are broken that need to be changed. Yeah. Perhaps the way they're going about changing them are abrasive to some people, but I do like the, the commitment to looking at issues and trying to find an answer to them. Now, if you how you get there is an interesting thing, and how you frame how you're getting there is something else, obviously, but... The commitment to trying to do things, you know, with some thought as to let's get these done, they're important, but let's fix some things that are broken and let's move ahead. I think that's important because we've spent billions in this province with not a lot to show for it on a number of major projects. And and I got to hope that some of the things we're hearing is a commitment to trying to do it with some responsibility at the bottom line. Fantastic. That's all the time we have today. Thank you for coming in. My pleasure. We'll look forward to having you back next month. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to learn all about Digital Health Week on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Did you know that only 22% of Canadians have access to their health information online? And 73% of those who don't want it. In today's digital age, Canada is no longer a world leader in healthcare. But Canada Health InfoWay wants to change that. This week, the organization launched Access 2022, a movement to promote a future where all Canadians have access to their health information through the availability of digital health tools and services. The vision of Access 2022 
is to bring together the expertise of the entire healthcare system and technology sector to deliver digital services that will empower patients and improve healthcare outcomes. To learn more and join the movement, visit access2022.ca. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. My next guest, Michael Green, envisions a future where all Canadians can access their health information and interact with their providers from the device of their choice. Michael has long been a visionary for the way digital health solutions can make public health systems more sustainable and improve the patient experience. He's played senior executive roles with health technology companies spanning major global markets. As president and CEO of Canada Health Infoway, he's leading a national strategy to realize this vision. They provide citizens with tools to manage their health, eliminating paper and faxes, and modernizing the way doctors prescribe medicines, book appointments, and communicate with patients and colleagues. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Great to be here. We Canadians pride ourselves in our health care, publicly funded, egalitarian, and equitable. But our system isn't as cutting edge as we think it is, particularly when it comes to health records. What's the current status of, of our system, and, and what should we be concerned about? Yeah, so that's a, a good question. And, um, you know, basically, Infoway was formed in 2001, and one of the goals then was to help build the infrastructure for the electronic health record. And it is a big task, indeed, to do this across the country, and particularly in the Canadian system, where we don't just have one system, but, as you know, the provinces and territories are all responsible for their own health systems. But although we've come quite a way, there's still some gaps that need to be filled. A lot of the information, for example, lab test results, diagnostic imaging, drug information, public health information, and so on, a lot of that information is held in repositories in all of the provinces and territories. And that was a result of programs that we at Infoway and the federal government worked with the provinces and territories on over the last few years. But the key is connecting it to patients. And so over the last few years, uh, we had an EMR program, which was basically to help family physicians adopt electronic medical records so they could record all their patient interactions. Right. And the key, though, is to make all these systems speak to each other. And that's one of the problems, is getting this interoperability. Isn't also the problem as simple as, you know, some interaction is still done by technology that really people aren't using anymore? For example, faxing. To my knowledge, and I've been publishing and, and sort of working in media for, for over a decade, nobody uses fax machines anymore, but doctors will fax over prescriptions, for example, to pharmacies. Yeah, that's right. I mean, fax and paper are still widely used in healthcare, not just in Canada, globally, really. And it's been a slow market to change. I think part of it is because healthcare is quite highly regulated. And then also doctors' offices, you know, they tend to be, you know, working on their own, sometimes in group practices. And so they haven't had the resources to kind of adopt new technology in, in the same way. But the good thing is that, um, you know, a lot of the systems are in place. And hopefully this is going to be something that will be in the past. and We can really make some changes over the next couple of years. Why do you think it's so important that we, we update our system to be more tech relevant? I think there's a number of reasons. One of the key reasons is, you know, the patient experience, making the system easier to deal with. Also, quality, safety uh, are other concerns. And I think overall it will improve delivery of healthcare. 
you can imagine that if you need to, say, for example, you get referred to have an MRI or a CT scan, often that today is done by the doctor's office making a phone call or sending a fax to book an appointment. Right. You should be able to do this online when you actually see the doctor or have the ability to do it just as you can book an aircraft journey and buy your tickets online. There's a significant cohort, particularly among older Canadians who may not be so tech savvy. Do you have any concerns that by sort of shifting over to the new technology that some people may be shut out or do you see it as an overall benefit? I think it's an overall benefit. And I think it it is surprising, actually, because some work has been done looking at seniors, and they are much more tech-savvy than people often think. And, you know, you can imagine why, because when they keep in touch with their grandkids, they often do it through Facebook and other tools. And so, you know, that's not such an issue. Then, uh, on the other hand, there is the issue if people really don't have the tools or can't afford the tools. Right. And I think that... Overall, some of the gains will be the communication between doctors is going to be more efficient. So everybody will benefit from the overall efficiency improvements that the system gets. And I think being able to use things like, for example, if someone could do a video visit rather than go to the doctor's office, that would save time for everybody. And it would also mean that the people who are unable to do the video visits would probably be able to get a face-to-face appointment much easier. Right. So access and mobility issues will be alleviated if people could actually get a consult yeah, without having absolutely. to get to the office. Right. Yeah. That's very true. So a lot of what you're looking at right now, what you're hoping for, is in fact aspirational. In a perfect world, where would you like to see our our medical system going in terms of, you know, the technology? I think in a perfect world, what we'd ultimately like to see is that, you know, citizens would have the ability to really control their health care through their mobile devices like they do other parts of their life. So the ability to be able to look at their lab test results, the ability to be able to communicate with a physician, book an appointment online, and look at the status of um, appointments and so on. And also, you know, take advantage of things like e-prescribing and so on that eliminate the paper trail. So I think there's really every kind of aspect of dealing with the health system can be improved by enhancing the digital tools that we have. And, you know, let's look at it from the other side. You know, what sort of resources would we need in order to affect that change? And realistically, how long do you think it will take to get there? I think that the change is beginning to happen. And when I mentioned earlier that a lot of investment had gone into building some of the kind of data repositories and the electronic health records in hospitals and so on, the good thing about that and the good thing that, you know, now we have nearly 90% of family physicians have got the electronic health record. And so what we're talking about now is having tools that can help them utilize those systems for, you know, really doing more than simply using them as a, a filing cabinet. And so I think we will see some big change over the next four to five years. Oh, that soon. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, in some provinces, at the moment, I'm in Montreal. We have a conference running uh, in Quebec, in Montreal. And the Quebec government recently launched um, what they call Carnet Santé, a personal health record that all citizens can access. And that will exactly give them their lab test results and the ability to book appointments. So some provinces are moving ahead. And in other provinces, there are activities kind of growing in this field as well. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, you know, before I had this gig, I was a lawyer. And one of the things we learn in law school 
is division of power and it's the provinces that control health care. So how do you get continuity in a country as diverse and as broad as Canada when you have different jurisdictions with different resources to get to the same point? Yeah, I think that's where, you know, an organization like ours can help. You know, because we're federally funded, we're an arm's length organization, and we work with all the provinces. And what we try to do is identify what are the common issues that would have to be overcome over and over again in order to implement this technology across the country. And so we can even help the larger provinces and certainly the smaller ones really avoid duplicated efforts and end up with results that still will give good impact for their own health systems. And I presume and part of what you're doing, if you're encouraging sort of the movement towards the digital, that security concerns are being addressed along the way. Is that true? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a, a top concern that everybody wants to ensure that their health data is secure and that they're able to share it with the people that they want to share it with and, you know, restrict access as how they can as well. So that's certainly an important element of any program, along with identity management, so that when a citizen signs onto the system, the system knows it's got the correct person matching the correct records and so on. Do you have any concerns that the government would use this data for other purposes? No, I don't. I think it's very clear from a legislation point of view that, you know, certainly not allowed in any way whatsoever. And, you know, a lot of the software that's used in these kind of circumstances has got a kind of audit trail so that it will flag up if someone tries to look at it inappropriately. Okay, and what can we as patients in Canada do to to help with this initiative? I think, really, the, the thing is, you know, you can look for these tools when you go and see your doctor ask if there is the opportunity to have link into a a hospital health record i think also lots of people are now using their personal health tools like their apple watches and so on and um, you know i think this wellness information is very important as well that can be uh, a valuable tool as well as the kind of institutional information that you'll get from the health systems Fantastic. That's all the time we have today. Thank you for coming on the show. Great. Well, thanks very much. And, you know, we're rolling out this program now, and hopefully people will start to see the impact of it very soon. I hope so, too. Thank you. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to discuss healthy fats on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural Liquid Greens. Getting life insurance for type 2 diabetics can be a confusing and frustrating experience. Many type 2 diabetics buy life insurance products that are either way too expensive or take too long to buy. Most type 2 diabetics are surprised how affordable life insurance is. For example, a 55-year-old type 2 diabetic can get $250,000 of life insurance for only $86 a month. Remember, your information and quotes are completely confidential and there's no obligation to buy. So if you're a type 2 diabetic, take your best first step in buying life insurance by going to typetrue.ca. That's T-Y-P-E-T-R-U-E dot C-A. 
This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Dr. Emily Lipinski graduated from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine in Toronto and is a member of the Ontario Association of Naturopathic Doctors. While in the academic world, Emily became fascinated with the potential applications of naturopathic medicine in health and wellness. She strongly believes in addressing the root cause of a medical issue and using natural therapies either alone or in conjunction with conventional Western medicine to affect results. Welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. So today we're going to chew the fat, right? right. Sorry, I had to do that. For years, we've heard about reducing fat intake, right? I mean, you know, that was the mantra for health and wellness purposes. And then the messaging changed and we started learning about healthier fats, that not all fats were terrible. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's start at the very beginning. What's your position? Should we be avoiding fats or? Yeah. So I kind of think of the last 40 years of being like this low fat trend. Right. Yeah. That actually, when we look at the research, it did a lot more harm than good. And the reason being is that when we took fats out of the diets, we replaced them with more carbs and a lot more sugar. It inevitably ended up spiking people's insulin levels. And when the insulin spikes in the body, it actually stores more fat. And it's really not great for the heart, for cardiovascular disease, for stroke, and especially for diabetes type 2. Sugar is the new fat. That's the way I look at it. It really is. Yes. Um, So sugar was and always has been the evil, but fat got misinterpreted. It's diabolical. It tricked us. It did. It did. So, of course, there are some bad fats. Trans fats are really the bad fat. Hydrogenated Vegetable oil. Vegetable oils is a bad one. That I know. Really, that is primarily in packaged foods, stuff that we shouldn't be eating anyways. And shortening in margarine is hydrogenated vegetable oils is a trans fat. And I remember for years growing up, I'm older than you are, butter was bad. You couldn't have butter. You had to have margarine. You had to have margarine until they realized that margarine came with a whole host of, you know, the color, the preservatives and the trans fat. The trans fat. And not to mention some pesticides that would be in there because it's hydrogenated Mm, vegetable oil. Pesticides. Right. So when you're looking at bad fats, really the main culprit is trans fat, which is in very small amounts in um, some animal products and dairy. But I tell my patients, it's the quality of the fat. So we've also heard that saturated fats are bad. New research is showing that actually there's not a lot of correlation between high consumption of saturated fats and heart disease. Right, but it's the polyunsaturated fats that are the real culprit, not necessarily just saturated fats. And it's, again, the quality, right? Right. Like if we're talking about a hamburger from a fast food joint that has some saturated fat in it, that's much different than virgin organic coconut oil, which also has saturated fat. But the saturated fat in coconut oil has actually been found to be beneficial for cholesterol profiles. We do need fat in our diet, right? You cannot have a no-fat diet. I read an article once, and I'm not going to say who it was because I don't remember, But they said that really humanity became a species and and were allowed to progress because our brains got bigger because of the consumption of fat. Mm -hmm. And without it, we wouldn't have had our brains develop such the way that it does to be able to understand language, etc. Yes. So fat is important for our brain health, right? Our brain is primarily fat. Over 50% of the brain is fat. For brain health, we need fat for nutrient absorption. We need fat for proper cellular functioning, like our cell walls in our bodies comprised of fatty substances. Right. I've been publishing for over 10 years, but you know, in doing the show over the past year, when I hear about how many of the supplements require fat to be properly absorbed into the body, you, you recognize that it's all sort of, you can't cut everything out, right? That's like, right. That's the bottom line. Yeah. Okay. So what's the difference 
between healthy and unhealthy fats. You were touching upon it before. Yeah. So again, like circling back to the main unhealthy fat is the trans fat. We have lots of literature that, you know, hands down trans fats are not good for us. And then the healthy fats are the, you know, which used to be known as the unsaturated fats. But now again, research is saying maybe some of these saturated fats is actually healthy. So instead of using all the fancy names, I kind of focus on the quality of the fat. So things like avocado oil, coconut oil, olive oil fish oil, those are all healthy fats. Your trans fats from packaged foods and fast food joints are unhealthy. Right. So, you know, if you're going to have French fries and they're frying it in an oil, and if it isn't, nobody's frying your French fries in olive oil. No, or coconut oil. oil Because of the burn points. And it's too expensive. Right. right? So they're using cheaper oils and those oils tend to have trans fats. That's right. Also, if you're buying packaged cookies or packaged snack foods like crackers, yeah, whether they're baked or not, they're going to be either sprayed or doused in those oils. That's right. And you can taste it yes. when you're eating those products. Yes. So if you cut those out, you're probably solving 90% of your bad fat intake problem. Right. And if you just check the label, now labels sometimes say the list trans fat and right. they'll say 0%. Right. But if the trans fat, the hydrogenated vegetable oil, is right. less than a certain percent, they actually don't have to put it on the nutrient label, but they still have to list it in the ingredients list. Aha. So you want to always check the ingredients list to see if it has the hydrogenated hydrogenated vegetable oil or partially hydrogenated vegetable oil? Honestly, I I can think of very few packaged cookies or unless you're talking about the organics or crackers that don't have it. That's right. But it's always good to take a peek, right? right. Some people just really don't. If they've just read that nutrition little diagram, they haven't actually read all the list of ingredients. They don't realize they're ingesting it. Uh, You know, truthfully, I get impatient. My wife is always looking at the labels when we're shopping and I now go shopping on my own because I don't have the patience to read the labels. I just avoid the products. Or you just don't buy packaged food, right? We tend not to, right? What do they say? If you if you stick to the uh, the margins of, of the, the grocery, grocery store. store, so like if you're not shopping in the middle five aisles, you're probably okay. That's right. Yeah. How do you feel about fats from animals? What's your take on that? Again, when we look at the research, a lot of the research shows that in areas where they have traditionally and still do consume high amounts of animal fats, high fat dairy foods, they don't have higher cardiovascular risk factors. They don't have higher heart attacks. They also don't have higher amounts of obesity. That changes when we're looking, though, at high consumption of what I call bad meats, like conventionally raised meats, red meats, that sort of stuff. And processed meats. Processed meats, yep. And same with full-fat dairy has now shown to be healthier than low-fat dairy. Again, less carbohydrates. What? Less, really? Yes. Yeah. I didn't know that. My wife has to listen to this because but, she's always riding me for having the high-fat ricotta. And it was going... Yeah. So high-fat dairy shows individuals that have higher consumption of high-fat dairy actually seem to be have less weight gain. So high-fat dairy might be better for weight loss, which is very fascinating. Huh. So if you like cheese like I do... That's good news. It's good news, except the caveat is that in all animals, us included, pesticides and toxins hang out in the fats. So if you're getting cheese that's conventionally raised, that's been on grass, that's had, you know. I'm talking about the good stuff. Yeah. The the really expensive stuff, you know, the Brie de and Sure, that's organic, right? That's the good stuff. But people really have to realize they have to fine tune that, you know, going out and just buying cream from your run-in-the-mill grocery store cream that has a lot of fat in it. It might be good fat, but unfortunately it might be tainted because of the pesticides in that. Gotcha. Well, let's focus on some of the good fats and why are they good and what we can use them for. So let's start 
with coconut oil, which I know is one of your favorites. Yes. I love coconut oil. Coconut oil is comprised of a fat called MCT. That's a medium chain triglyceride. Most fats on the market are long-chain triglycerides. Long-chain triglycerides are absorbed by the body very quickly. Mm-hmm. Medium-chain triglycerides, the body has a more difficult time absorbing it, but a very easy time using it for energy. So they're burned very quickly, and the studies show that it might actually help with weight loss. They also are very good for focus and energy. What about actually cooking with coconut oil? What are some of the tips you would have? Well, coconut oil also has a high smoke point. Right. We haven't touched on this yet, but some oils, when you cook with them, that olive oil included, it starts out as a good fat. If you fry with it, it changes the structure of it, right. and it becomes not so great a fat. A, a lot of the nut oils are like that too, That's right? right. Like, like you can use them as finishing oils and use right. them raw, salad dressings. But you you don't want to deep fry with olive oil because it, it, the smoke point is so low, right. you, it ends up burning, that's and, then, right. and, and that's when you lose the nutritional value of that's the oil right. as well. That's right. But coconut oil has a very high smoke point, as does avocado oil. So it's a great oil to cook with, to fry with, and so forth. The only drawback I would say to coconut oil is it's not cheap. Uh, It tends to be expensive per weight. So, you know, like if you're... If you're using it for those types of applications, you just cut your, particularly if it's organic, you're going to be paying for it. You are. But, you know, you are, we are what we eat, True. right? Uh, my, my grocery bill is quite high, but I focus on what I eat. That's really important for okay. our family, right? Now, avocado oil is a little less expensive. And but it's still pricier. If we're looking at, you know, the trans yeah. fats, the vegetable oils versus coconut or avocado oil, huge difference right. overall, right? Okay, so what are the benefits of the avocado oil? Is it similar to the coconut oil? Well, avocado oil has high vitamin E. So vitamin E has lots of beneficial applications, good for heart health and so forth. There's some studies that show, particularly with avocado oil, whatever you eat um, your avocado oil with, the nutrients are better absorbed. Hmm. So avocado oil has a special ability to help nutrient absorption. And there's less pronounced flavor. Coconut oil, you can really taste that you're having coconut oil, whereas avocado oil is more neutral. That's right. And it tends to be a little bit lighter. Yes. And if you're having an avocado itself, that still has a lot of oil in it. Right. And if you eat avocado, that also is very high in fiber, which is another great benefit. Okay. What about olive oil, which is my favorite? Olive oil, very high in antioxidants. It has a lower smoke point, so not as great to cook with, but as you mentioned, a great finishing oil. And it's excellent for the heart health. We have a study showing that people who ate or consumed one liter of olive oil a week, which is quite a lot of oil. Yeah, that's an awful lot. They had a 30% reduction in cardiovascular disease. Go on, really? How are they consuming it, though? It was based on kind of a Mediterranean diet, so probably over salads, you know, maybe with some bread. I know some people that put a little oil in their smoothies in the morning, whether that's olive oil, coconut oil, avocado oil, just to get the benefits right off the bat. Fantastic. Well, that's all the time we have for today, but you're going to come back next month, right? I will. And uh, when you come back, we're going to talk about tips for improving your mood. Yes. Okay. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to learn what's more important, prebiotics or probiotics on the tonic. At Caregiver Services Limited, we specialize in 12 to 24 hour private care for seniors in private homes, hospitals, or facilities. We provide the highest level of customized service for families looking for a caregiver or personal support worker. To ensure the highest quality of care and support, we limit the number of clients we service. Whether you're looking for general live-in care or have more significant needs related to mobility issues, dementia, or palliative care, finding someone who's a great fit is most important. At Caregiver Services Limited, our highly experienced staff specialize in meeting the unique needs of 12 to 24-hour care. 
For more information, please visit caregiverservices.ca. Let our family help care for yours. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Megan Horsley is a registered holistic nutritionist, blog writer, and recipe developer. She's passionate about helping her clients discover their best selves with a holistic approach to their well-being with delicious food, movement, and thoughts. Megan loves witnessing the transformations that unfold. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Jamie. How's it going? It's going great. In the November issue of the magazine, you wrote a great article, which was really informative, about prebiotics and probiotics. Yes. And I think it's a subject that people know those words, but I'm not sure they know what it's about and how it all benefits their overall health. Right. So here you are today. And here we are. We're going to talk about it. Excellent. (laughs) So probiotics, which is the one I think more people know about, what are they? What do they do? So probiotics are beneficial bacteria. The majority of the probiotics that we have in our body live in our guts. I believe we talked about this in an earlier episode, but basically we have good bacteria and bad bacteria in our guts, right? And and so when we refer to probiotics, we're talking about the good beneficial bacteria. What does the good beneficial bacteria do? What it does is it helps with our digestion and it helps with our immune system. Those are the two main functions that they have in our bodies. Actually, the two main bacteria that we have are bifidobacteria and lactobacilli. Okay. Have you heard of those? No, I, was, I thought you were going to say E. coli. No. <laughs> No, we do have E. coli, though. Yeah, like small, yes, yes. No, I had not heard. I didn't know them by name, only by reputation. (laughs) So the interesting thing about these two bacteria are that we're born with them. So we're born with a small amount in our colons as, as babies, yep. but we also get a significant amount from breast milk. So if you're, if you were a breastfed baby, it's one of the best ways to get um, the early inoculation of, of good bacteria in your body. Right. Yes. So the, the good bacteria does two things. It, how does it help ward off disease? How does that work? If you have bacteria, shouldn't that be causing disease? Not necessarily. So it's, you know, the bad bacteria is what we want to limit in our right. bodies. Right. So you're going to have good and bad, as I said earlier. But the important thing is to make sure that we have enough of the beneficial good bacteria to crowd out the bad pathogenic bacteria. Oh, so uh, so it's like a it's a pie. So the more of the good we have, the less of the bad. Is that is that the way it works? Exactly. Yes. A zero sum game, they call it in economics. (laughs) I, I also thought it was because it allows our bodies to exercise sort of the process of fighting the bacteria in a benign way. Right. So yeah, that's definitely part of it. Right. So as I said, you know, have Having this bacteria helps boost our immune system. 70% of our immune system is in the gut. Right. So it's practicing. The body is practicing against these bacteria that are relatively harmless to us. Yes. How does it aid in digestion? So it's interesting. We have different kinds of fiber in our diet, hopefully. 
Yep. And we actually don't digest all of the fiber that we eat. In our in our stomach, right? It goes food goes down the esophagus into the stomach. Yes, we do have a certain amount of bacteria yep. in our stomachs. The majority of our gut bacteria when we're talking about gut bacteria will be in the intestines, right? right? So small and large intestines. So the interesting thing is with certain fibers, particularly with prebiotic foods, mm -hmm. there are fibers that we can't actually digest. So our enzymes do not digest these fibers. Our bacteria do. Bacteria uh -huh. eat it. And that way, you know, nutrients get absorbed into our system, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So how do we know if we need more probiotics? What are the indications that you need more? Yeah. So some of the telltale signs are like gas and bloating. You know, some of the, well, gas, I should say, is normal to a degree. But if you right. have it all the time, if you have, if you have really painful bloating, mm -hmm. then that can be a sign that you need to look at your gut bacteria, look at your gut health in general. Right. Also, diarrhea and constipation. Right. right. The two banes of our existence. <laughs> exactly. So, so yeah, I mean, I think everybody sort of has a baseline gas level, but you're not just talking about gas, which is sort of a natural byproduct of the digestion process. Yeah, it can you're, be. Yeah, it can you're, be. You're, you're, talk, you're talking about the painful stuff and the, the bloating when you're, when you're feeling sort of like your pants maybe fit tighter or you're feeling logy or there's a, a general ache in your stomach, right? Yes. And, you know, particularly after meals, right? It's it's something that you can feel almost instantly or for hours after meal, even for days. Okay. So we identify that we may need more probiotics. Yes. How do we get them? The easiest way, of course, is through supplementation. But not necessarily breastfeeding because that's not always <laughs> apropos, right? No. no, I'd say maybe for, you know, a um, certain amount what, of years in what, your life. <laughs> once you reach a certain age, it's not cool. You're going to have to find a different way. Okay, so how do, how do we do it? Well, actually, just, just to go back to that, some yeah. people do supplement with colostrum which is breast milk. So, I mean, there yeah. are certain circumstances where it can be very good for you, but you wouldn't be taking it from the direct yeah, source. Yeah, not from the source. That That's weird. Sense. Yeah, Sorry. Now, now that we have that awkward point yeah. shunted to the side, how do we move forward? Is, is there something we can buy at the stores? Yes. Yeah, so supplementation, as I mentioned, um, is one of the main ways that people get a lot of their probiotics. But then also fermented foods, right? I'm sure even in the article, I talk about how it seems like every food these days can be fermented right? Yeah, for the last two years, I've gone to the CHFA, which is the Canadian Health Food Association awesome. trade show. Yeah. Yes, love it. Yes. And rows after rows of products, the hot new product was all fermented stuff. And it's mm -hmm. been like that for the last two years, for right? For sure. Yeah. And so definitely uh, through fermented foods, they're everywhere. So it's it's so easy to get them these days. What are yeah. examples of the types of foods that you would recommend? Right. So kombucha is a really hot one yeah. these days. You got that right. Again, that's everywhere. Kombucha, yogurt, kefir. Yep. Kefir actually has more bacterial strains than yogurt. So that's something that you might want to consider incorporating it's just, more you may of. not always be able to find it in your store, right? You know, yeah, that's fair. But there are a few select stores that would have more. Right. Again, farmer's markets are a great way to find artisanal fermented foods. So you'll, you'll There's find... There's also like, it could be as simple as sauerkraut, you know? Like... Absolutely. Yep. That was also on my list. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I'm jumping ahead. You go ahead. Yeah. No. But... So sauerkraut, other fermented vegetables. So you don't, if you're not into cabbage, which a lot of people aren't. What? Uh, I know. I don't Go, get it. Yeah. Because there are so many different kinds of sauerkraut these days, right? right. You can have a rami added, which is a kind of seaweed, right? So or even Korean, you know, even if you go for you the Korean. Kimchi? Yeah, yeah, kimchi. Kimchi. You know, adds a lot of flavor if you're doing stir fries. You go Korean and you get the kimchi and you get the fermented cabbage, right? Absolutely. There. Yeah. You can even, I've done this, you can even add kimchi and miso into your soups and you'll have a super duper fermented meal, right? So miso is another fermented food. 
kimchi to add more spice. And yep. yeah, it's awesome. There's so many things you can do. Okay, so so those are prebiotics. Is that what we're calling the fermented stuff? Or so it, fermented foods are known as probiotic foods. However, yeah. depending on the kind of foods that you're getting that are fermented, yeah. they can also be prebiotic. Okay, so let's talk about prebiotics. Yes. What do they do? Prebiotics are essentially food for the, the probiotics in our bodies. So food for the, the bacteria in our guts. We're feeding the little symbiotes in our gut. Yes. So, I mean, once you start to learn about this stuff, you really wonder... Am I living for the bacteria? I know, or it's very science. Bacteria science, very, living for me. <laughs> very science fiction. We're just the Ubers that take the bacteria around, right? <laughs> Pretty much, we're just the vehicles. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, prebiotics feed this bacteria, and we want prebiotics in our diet because the bacteria has to thrive in order for us to function properly, right? right. So, if you're, or if optimally. You're, if yeah. you're going to go to the trouble of having probiotics, it's really kind of pointless unless they're feeding on the prebiotics. You won't benefit from them as, exactly. as, as much as you could. Exactly, exactly. So let's talk about what exactly prebiotics are. Just different examples. So they are things called fructooligosaccharides, short-chain fatty acids, or inulin. These are different examples of kinds of carbohydrates, fiber, and fatty acids. Okay. Basically, when we talk about prebiotics, this is what they're made of. And they're not difficult to get into our diet, are they? Like, no. not, They shouldn't be much of a challenge, right? When you're describing what they are, I, I'm off the top of my head, I can think of some foods that you would normally eat that would, would stoke the fire. So, so Yeah, what for they? sure. Yeah, we can talk about those. So asparagus, right? Okay. Garlic. I should say the raw versions of these foods are going to be higher in prebiotics. You know, once you start to cook these things, then they start to lose some of the... Okay. The, right? Dandelion greens, onions. These are foods that you typically have. Maybe not the dandelion, but I highly yeah. recommend it. <laughs> but it's very bitter. Dandelion greens are bitter. Very bitter, yes. Green bananas. See, I don't mind a green banana. I don't okay. mind them. With, like just before they start turning yellow, there's the... For me, it's a little sweet spot. Mm-hmm. The rest of my family thinks I'm crazy, but I don't mind eating that at all. Yeah, you can you can tell a lot about a person by the kind of banana they eat, I think. <laughs> right. See, I won't touch them when they turn brown. Really? Yeah, Do no. you make banana bread if they're brown? Or? Well, somebody else will have to because <laughs> I, 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 they're dead to me at that point. <laughs> so, yeah, green bananas and leeks. leeks I love are, leeks. Yeah. I made leek soup last night. Did you? I did. Okay. What did you put in it? I caramelized the leeks with vermouth. I added a stock and then I put bordellini beans and then I had Gruyere toasts on top. It was oh, wow. It was a very high-end onion soup. I was very motivated. That's really nice for a, a weekday dinner. Good yeah. job. Yeah. Good job. Well, you asked. <laughs> I'm not bragging. I mean, I am bragging, but yeah, well, you, you, you didn't did bring ask. Any. You didn't bring any. No, so. I didn't. That's true. <laughs> So are there any contraindications to taking either probiotics or prebiotics? Anything we should be concerned about? Interesting. Yeah, very interesting that you ask that. So let's say you're dealing with, so going back to gas and bloating and and pain after eating, uh, typically these can be signs of IBS or IBD. So irritable bowel syndrome, irritable bowel disease. And interestingly enough, if you are experiencing these two things or one, either or, staying away from prebiotics while you're working through these conditions is pretty important. Reason being, so there is a particular diet called the FODMAP diet, and this stands for fermentable oligo monosaccharides and polyols. Yeah, that is complicated. It's very complicated. So basically, a lot of the prebiotic foods that we mentioned and a lot of sweeter foods are are the kinds that you want to avoid. So definitely checking in, you know, of course, with a healthcare practitioner to make sure, you know, if you wanted to start incorporating more prebiotic foods, you know, where your gut health is at in order to do that. Okay.
Is there anything other than having the prebiotics and the probiotics, is there anything else that we can do to help aid our digestion? For sure. I think in today's society, we are constantly distracted while we're eating. You know, like you work from home and and I also work from home and sitting in front of the computer is something that we all do. You know, eating our lunch while we're working is something that we all do. And so I think taking that time away and really enjoying your mealtime in a calm, seated, relaxed position is going to really help you digest your food better, believe it or not. Fantastic. Great advice. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can download this episode as a podcast on zoomerradio.ca and thetonic.ca. For articles written by Megan Horsley, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighborhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we discuss the future of medical cannabis, the state of caregiving in Ontario, mindfulness and distress tolerance, and the health benefits of dark chocolate. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.